All right, well, welcome to GNCC Church. I'm Chuck Lee Master, and man, that sun is bright today. Going to preach with sunglasses on, and, and fortunately, it's not blazing hot, so we're going to be thankful for the good gifts that we have, uh, you know, low humidity, nice temperature. Lord, thanks for today. Thanks that we get to be here at a racetrack. We get to do church outdoors without fear of any reprisal. We still live in a great country, and we want to be mindful and respectful of that and, and grateful for your blessings on our life. So as we open your word tonight, Lord, just give me the words to share your truth, encourage us, inspire us, challenge us, and bring us close to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll be honest with you guys. This past week has been a difficult one. Usually, I get home from a race Monday, Tuesday. I'm pretty tired. Don't really, you know, I'll, I'll spend some quiet time uh, with, with the Lord, you know, just in the mornings, kind of having my coffee, but... Then about Wednesday, Thursday, I get serious about, all right, the next race is coming up. What's your heart, God? What do you want to share? Well, you know what happened a couple weeks ago, uh, that, that uh, Wednesday, Uvalde, Texas. It has just weighed on my heart, and it's like more news comes out, more news comes out. And uh, as a father, I can't imagine. 19 kids get, get murdered at their school, two teachers, and, and you know, we're just heartbroken. Every single one of us, we're, just, we're all heartbroken over this situation. And then in my hometown, Chattanooga, I live about 30 miles north of Chattanooga, there was a shooting Saturday night. Two groups of teenagers were at the Walnut Street Bridge. And what they were doing at 11 o'clock at night, we don't really know. Don't think it was gang related. But somebody had a gun and, and, and five people got shot. Six people got shot. 15 and 13 years old. And uh, I think Sunday there was a shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, where a gunman goes and takes aim at a birthday party. and. And an armed citizen pulled out her gun and took care of the problem permanently, which, you know, I say good riddance, but then we come to Tulsa and there's a shooting in Tulsa with, at the hospital. It's like one thing after another. And before all of this, there was the Buffalo shooting. And of course, now our whole country is just, it's like a volcano of, of gun control um, politics. You know, we've got people just on both sides. Everybody has an opinion. And, uh, of course, it's an international debate. Justin Trudeau up in Canada, the Prime Minister, just introduced legislation that uh, we're going to ban handguns in Canada, ban handgun ammunition. And, you know, maybe maybe you think that's a good idea. I, I think it's a terrible idea. I think that all of, our, all of our efforts to control a small group of bad people have restricted the good people, and it's time to let the good people loose and let us take care of a problem. But, you know, that's my opinion, and you can debate that if you want to. And, and obviously, there is a debate going on. And it's a vehement debate on both sides of the aisle. And of course, people on my side were like, well, look at New Zealand and Australia, the draconian lockdown measures. Look at China right now. Shanghai has been locked down. They've had millions of people locked in their apartments for two months now. And the latest reports are that there are armed government officials going door to door, taking people's pets out of their arms and killing the pets because somehow the pets are spreading COVID. And of course, here in the United States, that ain't gonna happen because you know why, you know, a, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the rights of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. You know, we have guns. You're not gonna do that here. But on the other side of the aisle, you know, people said, but if there were no guns, then nobody could be killed by guns. And we can go back and forth on this. Well, yeah, but then there could still be rocks and forks and spoons and knives. I mean, there be, and we can just go back and forth. What we want to wrestle with today, what I've been wrestling with all week, is what does God say about this? What is, what is the heart of God on this matter? Does God's Word address where we are today in 2022? And the answer is yes 
and no. Okay? I want to teach you a couple of really fancy church words. They're actually seminary words, okay? Exegesis and eisegesis. Okay, now I just learned these words myself. I never went to seminary. But I go to a really good church back home. It's a Calvary Chapel in Hickson, Tennessee. We've got a great pastor. I don't think he went to seminary either. That's probably why he's interesting to listen to. I really enjoy listening to him. He's down to earth, but he taught us these fancy words. Exegesis, eisegesis. Exegesis means from within and you bring it out. Eisegesis is from without and you bring it in. Okay, so here's an example of eisegesis. I like guns. And scripture will support my position. Here's how, Psalm 82.3. Defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Therefore, God wants me to carry a Glock 19. Because how else can you defend the poor and the fatherless, right? I mean, that's a perfect way to do it. On the other side, though, it's eisegesis. Somebody will say, yeah, but Jesus said turn the other cheek. So you don't need guns because you're just going to get beat up anyway. Yeah. And so there, you're taking from with, without, and you're, bringing, and you're bringing the culture into the Word of God. Unfortunately, we have had churches, we've had whole denominations over the last five to ten years that have been taking this approach to the Word of God. Take what God says about marriage, for example. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. He said, populate, fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Jesus reiterated this. Man shall leave his father, his mother, cling to his wife. The two become one. It's one man, one woman. But we have whole denominations now that are falling for the culture. And they're like, well, you know, what God said back then applied for then. But we live in the day and age now. It's a little bit different for us. And God would certainly understand. Except the problem is Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. And so I said, Jesus, it's real easy to take what we want to believe, bring it into the Bible, and then use the Bible to support our position. It gets real tricky on this when we talk about end times theology. Prophecy about end times. I'm sure you've all heard uh, Dan the book of Daniel and Revelation talk about the Antichrist or the beast. And the number of his name, if you can calculate it, is 666, right? So it's like every time we have a pope, somehow the pope is the Antichrist. Right now, Pope Francis is uh, uh, the 266th pope of the Catholic Church. So the number is 666. He's 266. There's something there. He's probably the false prophet. See, that's eisegesis of bringing it in, bringing our preconceived ideas and putting it into the Bible. And it, it's, it's, it's true, though, that there are prophecies within the Bible. Things that we need to know, that we need to pay attention to, that we need to be aware of, so that when we see them happen, we can recognize them. That's exegesis. That's what we've been very careful to do on GNCC's church right here. A couple months ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. It was another one of those moments where I came to you and said, man, I had a really hard time figuring out the message this week because this has been weighing on me. So we talked about prophecy and, you know, is there a Gog and Magog involved in this from Ezekiel 38? We didn't go there because that's, that's not, that's, that would be eisegesis. But what we do is we look at the things that are happening and say, okay, does this apply? And the whole purpose of prophecy is that we can be aware of events when they happen and say, hey, that one's fit in the pattern. That one's fit in the mold. And we worship the God of the prophecy, not the prophecy itself. You see how that works. And now you come to today. You come to our age right now. we got this whole debate going on around us, and we've got all kinds of crazy things. 
look at uh, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24. Jesus sits down with his disciples and he talks about, hey, as, as, as we come to the end, before, the, before all this happens, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars. There's going to be lawlessness. There's going to be an increase in violence. There's going to be all these things that happen. And we look around and we saw in COVID, we saw all kinds of violence and lawlessness increase. He says, as in the days of Noah, people will be eating and drinking. They'll be married and, and given in marriage. And we go to Genesis chapter 6 and we also recognize that in the days of Noah, it was very violent. And we're painfully aware that our world is violent today. And I'm convinced that given all these things, we are looking at what Jesus said. The end is not here yet, but it's what he called the birth pangs. And then you take what Daniel and Revelation said about the Antichrist and or the beast and ten little horns. And it seems like there's one central guy at the end who's going to be in charge. There's going to be ten different provinces, ten different leaders or rulers throughout the world. And nowadays you're hearing about World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, uh, New World Order. And it sounds a little bit like a conspiracy, but I first heard New World Order in 1991. Right after the first Persian Gulf War, President Bush, President H. Bush, stood up and he talked about the, the Persian Gulf uh, War and he said, he said that uh, this was about more than one small country, it's a big idea, a new world order. I remember hearing that when I was 18 years old saying, President Bush, you say you're a Christian and don't you know that the new world order, that's like the end times kind of ushering in of the Antichrist, I can't believe you're going there. Well, now it's 30 years. It's 30 years later, and we're completely desensitized. We hear this stuff, and it's just like, oh, yeah, those crazy kooks, those, those, those conspiracy theorists. And yet, our own vice president is on camera talking about the Great Reset, New World Order. Nobody will own anything, and you will be happy. And so we're hearing all of these things, and we're starting to see, like, those birth pangs that Jesus talked about. I'm recognizing some things happening in the world today that fit that mold. How should I respond to that? How should how should I uh, how should I live my life? And so this week after the shooting in Uvalde, there's one verse, there's one passage that has just been weighing really heavy on my heart. It's from Ephesians chapter four, and let me give you the context here. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, the early church there in Ephesus, and he's talking to them about spiritual maturity. He's talking about growing in Christ so that they can be useful to the kingdom of Christ, and he says. He says, then as we grow, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. And I'll pause right there because I'm reading that. Like this was written nearly 2,000 years ago. Look at our world today, the craftiness and the scheming. And we are so confused right now. We don't even know if a man's a man, a woman's a woman. Our culture is like off the rails right now. And Paul says, the way that we avoid that is by growing in Christ, is by growing in the Word, and by coming together as Christians to be one body, to be useful to the body of Christ. And he goes on, he says, instead, instead of being pulled aside, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. That's the phrase that has just been pressed in on me this past week. As we have all this division and this anger and this hatred that's being forced on us by our politicians, by our media, by even our friends, 
speaking the truth in love. And in, in full disclosure, in context of what Paul was saying, he was talking about you and me, the body of Christ. In order to grow together, in order to be useful to the kingdom of God, we need to grow, and to do that, we speak the truth in love. Now, if we speak the truth in love to one another, how much more should we speak to a world that's lost and dying because they don't have the truth? So speak the truth in love. So to do that, first of all, you have to be grounded in truth. And that was Paul's whole point, is that this is where we get our grounding. We get our, our grounding from the Word of God and from being together and challenging, inspiring, and encouraging one another. And we grow and we become useful. There's Honestly, there are a lot of distractions, though. And it is so... <laughs> It is so easy, and you know that I know this. Maybe you don't know this, but I know it's so easy to get sucked into arguments, especially because we have social media, Facebook in particular. Man, you can really get sucked into a rabbit hole on that one. And you speak the truth in love, man, nobody even has to know. <laughs> I don't even know this person. I'm going to blast them. So easy to go there. And yet, that's the phrase that's just been echoing through me all week long, speaking the truth in love. I always want to share, the last couple years, I've been really concerned about this. I always want to share the truth in a way that it can be received. Not everybody is willing to receive truth. But for those that are, I want to speak the truth in a way that they can actually receive it and benefit from it. And you know the way to not do that? Is by shouting, <laughs> rhetoric, beat them over the head with it, being arrogant. I mean, all the things that we see our whole culture doing, that's the way to not speak the truth in love. That's the way to speak truth. It might be true, but nobody's ever going to be able to receive it that way. Speaking truth in love. And so, let's put this whole thing in context. The whole last 14 minutes that I've been talking about, all this political stuff, gun control, the Second Amendment, end times prophecy, let's take all of that together, let's put it into context here. What do we, what do, we do with this? Here's what we know. We, we know that there's enough of Bible prophecy that we can surmise that we are in those birth pangs. We are coming right up on the end, the end of times, right here. So we know that. Our culture around us, off the rails, they're going wild. Violence is increasing. Government overreach is already happening throughout the world, and it is looming in this country right here. There are difficult people that don't want to hear the truth. So we got those things. What do we do with it? Well, how about we look at that guy who said, speak the truth in love. That guy, Paul, he might know a thing or two about this. Because when you look at Paul, you see that uh, he lived in a time, you think our culture is crazy? You should have seen the culture in his day, the pagan practices. As a Christian, we think that abortion is abhorrent. It's like the worst thing ever. In Paul's day, they didn't necessarily have medical abortions. But if they had a child that they didn't like, oh, it's a girl, particularly if it's a girl, they're like, oh, we'll just set it out on the manure pile the wild animals to take care of it tonight. That was commonplace in first century. Wild, crazy, violent culture, government overreach. Man, we haven't seen the half of it yet compared to what Paul saw. Difficult people, I think Paul knew something about that. Violence, obviously. Prophecy, Paul is the one that wrote a lot of what we know about prophecy. Not to mention, Paul lived in prophetic times. What, Paul, what got Paul started on his ministry was that he said, hey guys, we're living in the days that the Old Testament talked about. We're living it out right now. This Messiah was here. His name was Jesus. He was crucified. He resurrected. And people wanted to, they stoned him. They beat him. They whipped him. 
they tried to kill him because he, he pointed out we're living in prophetic days. So when it comes to prophecy, Paul knows a little bit. So all the things that we've talked about, Paul's already been there. A lot has been written about Paul, particularly in the book of Acts. Luke, Dr. Luke, wrote two of the New Testament books, Luke and Acts. Very smart, sophisticated, learned, scholarly guy. Luke actually went on mission journeys with Paul, and he documented these. And so we're going to look at uh, some of the last chapters in the book of Acts tonight, starting in Acts chapter 21. This is the time, and Luke happened to be with Paul because he writes in the first person that we happen to do this. Paul comes off of a missionary journey. He says, I want to go to Jerusalem. And so he goes to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he goes into the temple. And typically, whenever you read about Paul, he goes into a synagogue or he goes to, to the, the public place and he starts proclaiming Jesus. And there's always a big stir because Paul is talking about Jesus. Well, in this case, he says, I want to go to Jerusalem as a rest. I'm just going there and he's going to chill out. He goes into the temple and he does nothing. He, he goes, he actually partakes in all the Jewish rituals to go into the temple. He's totally behaving himself. And he's recognized, hey, that's Paul. What do you mean that's Paul? That's Paul. Get him. Kill him. And this huge mob erupts and they drag Paul out. And there's this huge commotion so loud that the tribune of the town, which would be like the sheriff or the marshal of the town, the sheriff hears all this noise and commotion. He's like, man, we got to go down to the temple, see what's going on. He gets there. He's like, what is going on here? And they're like, we got Paul. He's like, you got who? We got Paul. You know, Paul, he needs to be killed. Well, what does he need to be killed for? Well, you know, because he's Paul. And so he says, okay, he arrests Paul. He says, dude, I don't know what you did. I can't make sense out of anything that they're saying, but they're so mad at you, whip him. Just tie him up and whip him. So they tie Paul up to the post, and they're getting ready to whip him with a whip, and Paul turns to the centurion that's going to whip him. He says, you're going to whip a Roman citizen without due process and without a trial? And the centurion's like, whoa, you're a Roman citizen? And he tells the tribune, and the tribune comes up to him and says, I didn't know you were, how did you get to be a Roman citizen? I had to pay a lot of money to become a citizen. And Paul looks at him and says, you did, but I didn't because I was born a Roman citizen. And the, 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 uh, the tribune, the sheriff there, he's like, well, untie him, untie him. We ain't whipping this guy. He's a Roman citizen. Instead, puts him in jail, says, man, I got to figure out what's going on. Next day, brings him to the council, the religious leaders. And still can't make heads or tails. Like, why are you guys so mad at Paul? He can't figure it out. He says, man, I, I keep you in jail here until I figure it out. Word gets to him that there's a plot to kill Paul while he's in custody of the tribune. And so the tribune says, you know what? This is over my head. I'm going to send him over to governor, over to the governor Felix. He's over in Caesarea. So he took almost 500 armed men to take Paul in the dead of night over to Caesarea to Governor Felix. Yes, to Governor Felix. And, uh, and, and Governor Felix honestly can't figure out what Paul is guilty of. He asks a bunch of questions, does a little bit of an investigation, can't really figure it out. So what does he do? He leaves Paul in prison for two years. Just that, you know what, you must have done something, so we'll throw you in prison without due process. Didn't charge him with insurrection or anything crazy. Just we're gonna put you in prison and forget where the key is. Never happened, right? <laughs> right. So Paul's in prison for two years. Meanwhile, Felix is replaced by Festus, a new governor in town. Festus comes in, says, "Hey, we got this prisoner Paul here. 
Festus says, well, I kind of need to get to the bottom of this. So he starts asking some questions. The religious leaders are like, oh, yeah, you still got Paul? We need to kill him. And so Festus brings Paul out. He says, Paul, you want to go to Jerusalem and answer these charges? And Paul says, and I'm paraphrasing here, Paul says, I'm about over this dog and pony show. I appeal to Caesar. <laughs> and Festus says, well, all right then. Uh, this is your right as a Roman citizen. You're allowed to appeal to Caesar. To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. In the meantime, almost immediately, the king came into town. King Agrippa. Okay, now we've talked about we talked about the tribune, the sheriff, who took him to the governor, who now there's King Agrippa and appealing to Caesar. So you see the, the hierarchy here, right? Paul's just climbing the ladder here. I mean, he started out at the lowest level, and he's just climbing all the way up the ladder here. King Agrippa comes into town, and Festus pulls him aside and says, Hey, King, i got to tell you about the curious case of Paul here. i got this guy. All the Jews are mad at him. I can't really make heads or tails out of it. And the king says, Well, i got to talk to this guy. So they bring Paul in, and King Agrippa says, Paul, why don't you just tell us your side of the story? And Paul... Right in front of the king, the governor, all the important people, he just shares his testimony. He just shares the story of what God did for him on the road to Damascus, how he met the risen Jesus. And as he's talking about this, Paul gives the invitation to the king. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, short, long, it doesn't matter. I would that you and everybody here would be as I am, except for these chains. At the end of the conversation, Agrippa says to Festus, he says, you know what, this man, he could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So off to Caesar he goes. He's got to go to Italy. He's got to go to Rome. Now the interesting thing about this is that Paul has always wanted to go to Rome. When you read the letter that he wrote to the Romans years before this happened, he says, I want to come see y'all. And after I see you, I want to go on to Spain. He has plans. He's always wanted to go to Rome, and he's always been prevented. The Holy Spirit has even prevented him from traveling in that direction. And so now he finally gets to go to Rome as a prisoner. The way that he planned? Probably not. Do you think it bothered him? Probably not. Because Paul was so focused on his mission. Paul gets on a ship, Acts chapter 27, Paul gets put on a ship bound for Italy. The Roman centurion has Paul, has a bunch of other prisoners that have to go to Rome as well. And, uh, and, and Luke is with him. We know this because Luke, like I said, is writing this story in the first person. And Luke says that the winds were not favorable, the journey was slow going, and eventually got delayed. They finally arrived at a small port in a place called Fair Havens. And Luke writes... Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, he was referring to a Jewish festival, the Day of Atonement, when they had the fast. That festival was late in September, so we know the festival has already passed. So we're, we're deep into fall. Winter is right now approaching. Dangerous time to be sailing the seas. Paul advised them, Luke writes, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. The response, shut up, convict. We ain't listening to you. You're a prisoner. We're going to sail for Rome. We're going to keep this ship afloat, and you don't get to call the shots around here. Now, it's interesting how there is wisdom in experience. Okay? We're reading from Acts chapter uh, 27. This was written 
This was written after 2 Corinthians. Paul had already written two letters to the church in Corinth. At the end of that, that, that second letter, Paul said, hey, I've been through all kinds of craziness. I've been beaten. I've been whipped. Three times I've been shipwrecked. And now he's in a situation. He's already been shipwrecked three times. And now he's in a situation where he sees the, the, the shipwreck on the horizon. Like he knows what's about to happen here. The voice of experience. But also, Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, there's incredible wisdom in walking with Jesus Christ. There's incredible wisdom in making, making the Creator God, bowing down to Him and making Him Lord of your life through His Son, Jesus. As a Christian, as a Christian, we already discussed marriage, one man, one woman. We clearly understand what a man is. We clearly understand what a woman is. We know that uh, we were created in God's image, so abortion is terrible. We know that that's, that's a sin, it's a crime, it's murder. Jesus or God said that uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. As a Christian, we, we look and we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We look around at the beauty around us. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that, that God is evident in creation. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, man. You bow down and you say, this ain't evolution. Evolution, there's not even any scientific evidence for evolution. On those three building blocks alone, I mean, you got, you got uh, intelligent design by Creator God. Abortion's wrong. A man is a man. A woman's a woman. Those three right there put you light years ahead of our culture right now. I mean, talking about having wisdom, there's the, there's the building block right there. And then add on to it the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in his last conversation on this earth, that last night, he said that he was going to send a helper, the Spirit of Truth. And he says that the world doesn't get this helper. The world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see, we have the advantage, the same advantage that Paul had, the Holy Spirit. So he had wisdom. He had godly wisdom. He had, he had experience as wisdom. He had godly wisdom. He had the Holy Spirit and he foresees a shipwreck ahead. Do you foresee any shipwrecks in our future? I mean, it's always easier to look at somebody else and see the shipwreck in their life, right? Like, hey dude, you know, the way you're flirting with your co-worker, that's going to be a shipwreck in the making. But our national conversation, you see any shipwrecks? I mean, you can't print money and expect there not to be inflation, right? I mean, we all knew that, but no, you don't know nothing. I went to Harvard and this is transitory. Like, trans I've never heard that word. What is that? You can't print money and expect there not to be consequences. I work in the gas and oil industry. Day one, you cancel a major pro pipeline project and then you tell all the small refineries that you hope that they go out of business. You add regulations and restrictions and fine them for things that they've been doing for 40 years and you don't think that gas prices are gonna rise that cause the food prices to rise? This is obvious stuff. This is so basic. It's like, I don't even feel like I have godly wisdom on this. It just seems to be so, so, so out there in the open. And yet so many eyes are blinded. And here we are with our sunglasses off. Like, man, I see this completely. I don't see clearly. I can't see, it is bright out here today. But we see this, this shipwreck is looming. Paul saw the shipwreck looming, so what did he do? He organized the mutiny. No, he didn't. He went for the ride, and eventually, he went for a swim. But Luke writes it this way. He says they set sail, but soon a tempestuous wind, like a, a crazy wind, called a nor'easter, 
struck down from the land. The ship was caught and could not face the wind. It gave way and we were driven along and it was bad, Luke says. Finally, they started throwing cargo overboard. They started throwing the ship's tackle overboard. They got, they got as light as they could. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And finally, Paul stood up. And Paul says, he says, men, and I'm not ad-libbing here. He says, men, you should have listened to me. I was right. You were wrong. I mean, nothing like rubbing it in a little bit. He's like, you should have listened to me, but you didn't. And now here we are. What are we going to do about it? And he calms down. He says, you know, an angel just appeared to me. Says that I have a job to do. I have to go appear before Caesar. I'm going to live, and anybody who sticks with me is also going to live. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground. we got to crash the ship. And crash the ship they did. They ended up on a little tiny island uh, called that they called Malta. We believe it's actually Mil Miljet. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. M-L-J-E-T. little tiny speck on the map in the Adriatic Sea. As they all swim to shore on pieces of driftwood, whatever, not a, not a life was, uh, was drowned. They're building a fire, and Paul's got some driftwood there, and a snake, a poisonous snake, jumps out, latches onto his hand. He looks at it and says he shook it off into the fire. All the islanders are gathered around, and they're like, oh, he's a bad man. He escaped the sea, but now certainly justice has got him, but he's going to die of the snake bite. And they sit, and they watch him, and nothing happens to him. And so then they figured out he was a god. And Paul, you know, I'm not a god. He gets to be friends with the, the, the chief there, the village chief. The village uh, chief's dad is sick. Paul goes and heals him. And so then the whole island comes to Paul, and Paul heals them. And Luke doesn't go into it, but you know, because you know Paul, he told them all about Jesus. He told them how their sins could be forgiven. He told them how they could have eternity in heaven. He told them how the landscape of eternity, the landscape of eternity actually was expanded because Paul crashed on the island of Malta. Or a Milja, whichever it was. <laughs> so Paul, he's just always so focused on his mission. He eventually they do make it to to um to Rome, and there when he arrives at Rome, they're like, "Well, we never heard of you. Uh, we don't know what your charges are against you. So here, we'll just put you under house arrest." He's under house arrest for two years. While he's under house arrest, he writes the books of Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. Tradition tells us that that happened in 61 A.D. He's released in 63 A.D. From there, he goes to Crete, Nicopolis, Spain, possibly even Britain. 67 A.D., he's arrested again. He's brought back to Rome. It's the last year of Emperor Nero, the evil Emperor Nero, and tradition says that Paul was beheaded. So what? What do we learn from Paul? You know, here we are. We're looking at... We're looking at five things. We know enough about Bible prophecy to believe that we are like in the birth pangs. We see the culture's gone wild around us. The violence is increasing. Government overreach is looming. Difficult people all around us, they don't want to hear the truth. Paul faced all those situations. And through every single situation, he was mission focused. He lived for Jesus and he talked about Jesus. That's all he did. He lived for Jesus. He talked about Jesus. He didn't get all wrapped up. He said, speak the truth in love. As all these things were happening to him, he said, speak the truth in love. He lived for Jesus. He talked about Jesus. And you say, and I can hear your thoughts right now. You're like, but I'm not Paul. No, I'm not Paul either. But let me ask you this. 
Did God pay any different a price for you than He did for Paul? What's the price that He paid for me? Is the blood of His Son Jesus. What was the price that He paid for Paul? The blood of His Son Jesus. Paul's not any more important than I am, and I'm not any more important than any of you. The price was the same. Paul had a mission. God said, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. That was Paul's mission. For Chuck Leemaster, he said, hey, I'm going to give you a love for dirt bikes. I'm not going to give you hardly any talent, but I'm going to give you a love for it. And you're going to go to GNCC. And you're going to tell people about the love of Jesus Christ. I don't know what your mission is, but I guarantee you, if you live for Jesus, you'll have opportunity to talk about Jesus. I sit down with uh, teens, high school kids all the time. I say, hey, look, you want to show the world that you're a Christian? There is one easy way that you can do it if you're in public school. Actually, anywhere that you are, but especially in the public school. You want to let your light shine? Here's one thing that you can do. You don't, have to, you don't even have to be weird. You don't have to wear your pants up to here. You don't have to put a bowl on your head and give yourself a haircut. Here's the one thing that you do. Don't cuss. That's it. If you just don't cuss, people will look at you in a short time and they'll say, why don't you cuss? And it opens up the opportunity just to have a natural conversation. I'm in the corporate world. I do sales, like I mentioned, oil and gas. And I made the commitment when I took this position, God, I'm going to live my life for you, whatever way that is. So anytime I ever take a customer out to lunch, I always say, hey, you guys mind if I say a word before we start? Oh, sure. Hats come off. And I just pray. I thank God for his blessing on us. Thank you for our jobs. Thanks for providing for our families. Thanks for this great food. Just bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Every time. Thanks for doing that, man. Sometimes somebody will come up to me later and say, I'm really glad that you did that. That kind of, I'm kind of inspired to live my, my own faith a little bit louder today. I'm not doing anything weird or crazy. It's just the smallest thing, but it opens up doors. Live for Jesus, you'll have opportunity to talk about Jesus. You see, I say it all the time, so I'm going to say it one more time. You were created on purpose for a purpose. So it doesn't matter what the culture is. It doesn't matter what the shipwreck is that's looming on the horizon. God still has a plan and a purpose for your life. And I just challenge and encourage you to step into it. God, thank you for today. Just thanks for beautiful weather, sunshine that, that blinds us without sunglasses. It's all good. We're reminded that you are still in charge. You're in control. That although Satan is fighting you, although the culture around us is fighting you, your love and your light shines through. And I'm just reminded that the darker the night is, the brighter the candle shines. So Lord, just the lights that are shining here under this tent tonight, I pray that you will intensify us and that our lights will shine and that you'll use us to accomplish your purposes, even on the GNCC Racing Nations and our homes as we go back to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for hanging out with me. If you need anything, come see me. My name's Chuck. Love to talk with you.